Hi, this is Paul. Maybe we'll uh, finish this thing up because I'll be on vacation next week and I'll post these while I'm on vacation. So we'll see what comes. But overall, again, this is a great conversation. That's why I'm spending time with it. What I don't understand, yeah. and I'm open to be persuaded, is why the leap has to be made to the idea that this thing that I experience... Now, again, well, let's let it run some more. And that I have as a, let's call let's say it's a tool, right? I can dip into this source of information that I have access to. They can give me a useful advice. How so he's, he's talking about his intuition. That's what I talked about in the first of these three. How you go from that to the idea that we are all connected under this one thing, that this is a thing. The fact that other people have similar experiences could also mean like other people have thoughts because they have brains. Okay, right? that's a great question. That's a great question. And it, it's the same question as, let's assume for a moment that the voice of intuition that speaks to you has a moral element. And the moral element is that it's gonna shape your perceptions and your behaviors. Now you could say that's idiosyncratic, right? That it's only unique. Now, oh shoot, was it? Yeah, I believe it was. I read in the previous one, I read from C.S. Lewis's um, The Problem of Pain, where he has this really interesting take on morality. And, and for Lewis, um, morality is sort of a, 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 another sense that we, we have a sense of morality, which isn't too far from his intuition. To you. And some of that's going to be true, because that's true insofar as you're really creative, let's say, or even revolutionary. But here, here's the rub, as far as I can tell. Okay, so there's this idea that emerges in Exodus that the well-constituted polity has to have two dimensions. And again, he's, he's back to the Bible, which is interesting. There has to be a vertical dimension that unites it with the transcendent. So that would be like the king's fealty to, to, to God. Mm. The, the idea that the king himself is sub subordinate to a set of transcendent principles. Yes. And so is everyone else. So that's the vertical axis. And that would be that feeling of universality that you described, like sort of descending upon you. But then there's a horizontal axis. And the horizontal axis is something like, well, I have to conduct myself so that I can engage in repeated acts of reciprocal altruism with other people. Yes. Okay, now you need both of those because sometimes, you know, you might say, well, you should get along to go along, or you should go along to get along you should conduct yourself the way other people want you to conduct yourself. And that's usually true, except when everyone goes crazy. Right. And then you might say, well, what do you need to bind you when everyone goes crazy? And the answer is, well, you need that relationship with the vertical. And so- Except the, the central people who run the structure that connects people to the vertical often go crazy too. I, I, absolutely, that's a big problem, but that's why it, that's why it's a mistake to construe the religious enterprise as something that's only a consequence of tradition. Like, look, in the Jewish writings, you've got two sources of the religious enterprise. You've got the, you've got the tradition, and that goes corrupt, let's say, in the form of a corrupt king. But then you have the prophets, mm. and the prophets are those who stand up and say to the corrupt king, you know, there's a divine order against which you're transgressing, and if you don't get your act together, all hell's going to break loose, even though you're king. Now, your question might be, well, how do we tell the false prophets from the true prophets? And that's, 
I, well, and the answer to that is, by their fruits you will know them. That's one answer to that. But, I, but it does reflect this underlying problem. But you've already said in yourself, you know, you... Now, again, of course, by your fruits you'll know them is a direct quotation of Jesus. Um, just today, we did the conversation with uh, Jim Wellman and Trip Parker, and we're talking about we're talking about revivals and how to how to assess them, and and it's very much by your fruits you will know them. And if you go all the way back to the the eight things that we started looking at when we started this video. So, so this is sort of a dead reckoning, um, intimate partner, family relationship, friends, job, career, regulate temptations, um, the civic front, your participation in the broader society, uh, your health and educational plan, how to use free time productively and, um, and, and with generosity. So um, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the dead reckoning that he's talking about. You, you, you're leery to accept divine revelation in the form of a handed down tradition, mm. right? And that does make you a Protestant in the most fundamental sense. <laughs> but you also do note that you have access to something like, into, like the pool of intuition, let's put it that way, that can tap you right. I would say that to the degree that that intuition is a reliable source, it's also going to be structured so that it facilitates your ongoing interactions with other people in the best possible manner. So it's not purely idiosyncratic, right? It, it's again, it's subject to its own. Now, a few months ago when he was talking about sanity and I was picking that up here, I think that's what he's talking about too. There is a, um, sanity is, is in many ways sort of a, a communal dead reckoning where we all together figure out which way to go together. And now as, you know, when he talks about his Piaget equilibrated state, maybe you're sane within um, your little communal group, let's say your religion, or maybe you're sane within your nation state. Um, so, and, and, but when you, when you pull that out to other nation states, I mean, how are your nation states at war? Or are they able to productively work together and do things that are mutually beneficial for, so, for both sides? Are they able to negotiate? So again, you sort of pull this out. Its own logos, its own internal logic. If, if the, it may be upon occasion that that internal voice will do what Socrates did, Socrates' voice, which is to say, you have to off, offer yourself up as sacrificial victim to the mob, uh -huh. right? And God help us from that eventuality. But that may happen upon occasion, but it's still the case that if that voice of intuition is deep when it rises within you, it's going to rise up within you in a manner that facilitates your integration with the social community and the social community's improvement. At least so, so again, that's another sort of dead reckoning because the, of course, you can almost always hit these questions with, well, how do we know whether it's improvement? You, you look at signs and you try to say, can these signs be deceiving? Absolutely. Uh, maybe let's, I've been reading some World War II stuff again because I'm going on vacation. So, of course, the Weimar, the rest of the history, the Weimar Republic basically gets kicked over and suddenly Germany is no longer paying the reparations from the First World War and their economy is is going gangbusters because they're building all this military and 
So, you know, from the inside, everyone would say, yeah, this is great. This is the great way to go. But they're going to be interfacing now with other nations. And eventually, over a longer period of time, from, let's say, 1933 to 1945, um, people are going to look at this and say, no, this is a disaster. A better system would have um, been able to interface better with others. And you sort of go out from there. And of course, with respect to God, it goes all the way out to the limits in terms of eternity and, and all the way, all the way out. So you can have deceptive systems that in a short period of time seem to go well. It's basically the theory behind uh, natural law or something to that respect. At least you better hope that that's the case. Right. But that all those things are to my benefit. And also even the Socrates example, I mean, I, I, I think you and I both, you to a much greater extent, have offered ourselves up as sacrificial uh, <laughs> for, for the purposes of combating this bad religion that we talked about earlier. Uh, but even that, to me, just seems that it's easier to explain with something as simple as principles that have been inculcated in me by my life experience and by family. So as someone who's descended... Now, he's just made an appeal to tradition. Now, he doesn't see it as a religious tradition, but of course it is a tradition, and that those principles that he is pointing to likely have a religious, um, begin with religious roots. Did from... Uh, Soviet dissidents who spent plenty of time in the gulag, I'm not prepared uh, to say that a male teacher who has gigantic breasts is a woman uh, because the concept of truth va is more valuable to me than my reputation or career and whatever else, right? So, again, I, I don't know that the... And, and of course, if you're sort of prioritizing truth over these other things... You have, even if you're not using the same language as a religion or the language of a morality, you're, you're, you're using a system that is, has some equivalency between them. The inclusion of the divine is necessary for those things to be explained. Okay, that, okay great, great. Okay, so, so I think there's a technical answer to that question too. Mm. So there's a, there's a scene in the Gospels where, you know, the Pharisees and the... Uh, it's, quite, it's quite remarkable that... Because when, he's, when he uses the word technical, you would imagine it's going to be, again, sort of secular over here. It's going to be scientific. And so there's a technical answer, and he immediately goes back to the Bible. Bribes. So they're the woke bureaucrats, really, in many ways. <laughs> they're trying to trap Christ. Uh, scribes really aren't woke bureaucrats. Um, this, is, this is highly homiletical. All the time, because they think he's dangerous, and they'd like to nail him for heresy. And so they get a lawyer. That is true. They think he is dangerous and they would like to um, get him out of the way. To come up to him and say, uh, Master, which you, 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 you say you abide by the commandments. Uh, which of them is the greatest? And here's the trick. The trick is, well, no matter what Christ says, they're going to nail him. Because if he makes any one commandment superordinate to the others, then he denigrates the others and they can go after him on that front. So they really put him on the spot. And he says something that refers back to this principle of Mount Sinai, this idea of a horizontal and a vertical axis. Again, this is this is very homiletic. This is this is this is sermonic, right? And he says, um, "You should love God with all your with all your heart and with all your mind, and you should love other people as you love yourself." 
And so, and then he says, and those, that's the meta principle upon which all the commandments rest. And so it's an amazing sleight of hand eh, because he answers the question, but he doesn't allow himself to be trapped. And what he says is, and this is akin to what you just laid out. You said, well, I don't need faith in a religious structure because I can abide by these principles. And so we could think of the principles as your version of the 10 commandments. Mm. Maybe there's 20 of them. I don't know how many there are, but, and they're derived from your own experience. And I think, and the experience of your family. But then you might think, let's assume for a moment that all those principles are good. And so we're assuming that there's a commonality across the principles, and that commonality is that which I, allows them to be categorized as good. Okay. And then the question would be, well, what's the underlying meta-principle that unites them as good? And that's exactly the question that Christ is trying to answer. So he says, well, you want to be oriented towards the highest good, conceivable. You want to be open to that. And so that would be something like making the decision in your life that you were going to strive towards whatever was good, whatever that is, right? Just, just to make that the initial proposition. And then you- Loving God. You were gonna treat other people as if they were as valuable as you are and vice- Love your neighbor as yourself. Versa. And that that's the underlying two-dimensional, two dimensions of the principle that gives rise to, let's say all necessary commandments. And then I would say that the spirit that puts God above all else, puts the divine above all else, and that unites us with other people, that is what the monotheistic tendency tilts towards portraying psychologically. It's an attempt to flesh out what that is. That's how it looks to me. Fair enough. So, you know, like, it, are you, the question is, I think, Constantine, the question is pretty simple. If your principles are coherent, then there's a meta principle that unites them. And then the fundamental religious question would be, well, what is that meta principle and how do you, how, how do you conduct yourself in relationship to it? That it's good. It's really good. It's nicely put together. Makes sense, which is why I said it puts, it puts in question the very nature of morality and where it comes from. I understand that. Um, but I certainly wouldn't make the claim that my principles are coherent. <laughs> I don't know that they are. Uh, I, I've, I, it's something that I... And, and I, you know, it's that's easy to say and it's sort of fashionable to say, but at the same time, and, and I think we all have a sense that there are inconsistencies and incoherencies in our principles. Uh, that's a pretty normal experience in life. But they're probably as coherent as he can have them and as what works for him at this moment. Um, otherwise, he wouldn't be using them. Otherwise, he would be defaulting to other coherence and principles. But I, I tried to follow based on like I said, values passed down by family and probably Judeo-Christian in origin at one point. Um, so I don't have a good answer for you. If you read, this is a book that I've mentioned all throughout making videos, Christian Smith's Soul Searching. It's out of this that moralistic therapeutic deism came about. This book was a little while ago, 2005. 
This was a study done uh, broadly over American teenagers, and it seems that um, Constantine has imbibed a lot of the culture of the West. American youth, like American adults, are nearly without exception profoundly individualistic, instinctively presuming autonomous individual self-direction to be a human norm and a, and a life goal. Throughout individualism is not a contested, thoroughgoing individualism is not a contested orthodoxy for teenagers. It is an invisible and pervasive doxa. That is an unrecognized, unquestioned, invisible um, premise or presupposition. U.S. teenagers found individualism informs a number of issues related to religion. For most teens, nobody has to do anything in life. You've, you've heard Constantine say that a number of times, including anything to do with religion. And that sort of gets into his idea that, well, religion is for people who need it, not me. I, I have my principles. I have these things I've developed from my parents. I have these things that I've thought about. I've got my instinct. I, I don't need that, no matter how much religious stuff is actually a part of that package that he has received. Consequently, certain traditional religious languages and vocabularies of commitment, duty, faithfulness, obedience, calling, obligation, accountability, and ties to the past are nearly completely absent from the discourse of U.S. teenagers. Instead, religion is presumed to be something that individuals choose and must reaffirm for themselves based on their present non-going personal felt needs and, per and preferences. Second, most U.S. teens are at least somewhat allergic to anything they view as trying to influence them. They generally view themselves as autonomous mediators or arbiters of all outside influences, as if they themselves who, who finally, um, as if, it is they themselves who finally influence their own lives. Other people and institutions provide information that youth see themselves as filtering, processing, and assimilating. Based on this information, they have their own decisions to make for themselves, or so the story goes. A third consequence of American individualism for teenagers related to religion is that most teens embrace a very strong ethos that, fors um, that forswears judging any idea or people that might be different. Um, like many adults who are socializing them, they are often readily proffered decision. They offer readily prof. They often readily proffered decisive judgments as obvious facts that they take as self-evident to any reasonable person. Well, obviously, you shouldn't hurt someone else. It's totally wrong to have sex with someone you don't really care about. What almost <laughs> that one might be going away. What almost all U.S. teenagers and adults lack, however, is any tools or concepts or rationales by which to connect and integrate their radical, relativistic individual selves, on the other hand, with their common sense, evaluative, moralistic selves, on the other. So teenagers continually seesaw, and you see this in this conversation with, with, um, with Constantine. They continually seesaw with little self-awareness that they are doing that they are doing so between their individualist Jekyll and their moralistic Hyde selves, incapable of reconciling their judgments with their anti-judgmentalism and therefore merely banging back and forth between them. Most U.S. youth tend to assume an instrumental view of religion. In other words, and you hear this when he says, religion are things that other people need. I don't really have one or need one because, and I suppose I could go get one if something happened in my life and I discovered that I needed it. For all of religion's functional value in the eyes of most U.S. teenagers, particularly in providing moral guidelines, religion actually bears a complicated relationship in teenagers' minds. Now again, this was done when he was a teenager, more or less. Um, 
but they do not view religion as necessary for anyone being good because they see they see many means to being good and many good non-religious people. Hence, most U.S. teenagers conclude that religion is a non-necessary condition for achieving of one of its primary functions. In other words, the thing religion specializes in does not actually require religion to achieve. Consequently, many U.S. teenagers construct religion in non-essential terms as an optional individual lifestyle that does help um, that does indeed help many people, but is necessarily, but is, but is certainly not itself ultimately necessary. And he says pretty much that again and again. So, so at some point, the question is, what does Peterson want? Now he, again, this is where I see him as, in some ways, a throwback to sort of the waspy, not even necessarily waspy because he's broader than that, but um, but sort of the Christendom that was, this, this is similar to wanting to get back to what has been lost. So is your goal in, in talking to him to get him to uh, go to church, to an Orthodox church, or there's plenty of Russians that are going to evangelical and Pentecostal churches now. So um, Peterson is sort of working through these ideas, seeing how these ideas are landing. And of course, because of Peterson's ideas, a lot of people are starting to go to church or at least have different opinions of religion. And But a lot of these opinions of religion have been changing as, as Tim Keller noted, you went from prescriptive, you went from, let's say, what are those two categories that Keller uses from um, Rowan William? Now, this is the kind of thing I would expect to find on either Grim Grizz channel or Friday morning nameless. You know, I named my clips channel Vanderclips, V-A-N-D-E-R-K-L-I-P-S. And so I quick grab that because I can run over there and get a video. And what do I find? Vanderclips used with Wendy's Let's. So, so I'm going to mute this just in case this music isn't youtube copacetic but here these are vander clips they look like potato clips with a little bit more beef and now is, is this is this what vander clips has come to <laughs> I, I i'm not gonna be able to unsee this <laughs> this is gonna be one of those clips i play in a lot of videos church they actually went and that even though, like, you know, the liberals and conservatives in Congress would were uh, arguing over taxes or unions. but it, It's sort of like we had, with enough people going to church, we sort of had, like, religious herd immunity that it gave the culture enough of an assumption that these teenagers who grew up in the 90s could say, yeah, I don't need to go to church. There's, it's kind of like, I don't need to worry about COVID because everybody else has as immunity or measles or something like that. I don't need to worry about those diseases because there's enough herd immunity around. But then the herd immunity numbers start going down and everybody's thinking, mm, we need something else. And I think that's sort of where Peterson and Tom Holland and Douglas Murray begin to kick in. But they would never argue over same-sex marriage. They all thought it would be a horrible thing. In other words, everybody was a nominal, 80, 90% of people were nominal Christians. And because they were nominal Christians, they had they had a moral base and they lived with the illusion that we're really not a Christian country. We're 
a secular country. But and and that, of course, then afforded all of those ideas from soul searching that um, that Christian Smith found among the teens. The fact is, they'd never really had to deal with pluralism using liberal democratic, uh, you know, structure. And when real pluralism came along, when real pluralism came along, we found out we, we couldn't abide it. And so now here's... And, and wokeism is sort of the first flourishing of a real per pluralism. This is, a, this is getting beyond the Cold War assumptions of, well, what good people are and the relationship between good people and church and the alignment between sort of the, the establishment and Protestantism. This is the first thing that happened. The first, the first group of people that actually moved away from liberal democracy into we're going to impose our worldview on you were the progressives. They were the first people to start doing it. Um, what uh, Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury, former, talks about, he calls it programmatic secularism rather than procedural secularism. There you go. Programmatic secularism versus procedural secularism. In other words, it used to be the government was secular in the sense of being a neutral umpire and said, okay, you know, we, we want to make sure everybody has a, a you know level playing field to make your case and, and live your lives. And and so that neutrality sort of mirrors or objectivity. Oh, that's neutral. Well, it was never neutral. It was the it was this implicit Western Christianity that was sort of you had this humanist version of it, which is sort of Christianity light. But programmatic secularism goes like this. Um, uh, if you, ex well, put it this way. In the 60s and 70s, even the 50s, if somebody wrote a book saying it's okay to be gay, that would probably be not publishable because it would be banned as obscene speech, right? Today, if you say, if you try to write a book or say it's not okay to be gay, now it's also condemned as obscene speech, except it's called hate speech. And what's happened is there was a kind of hegemony. It wasn't pluralistic. There was a kind of nominal Christian hegemony that really did run things. And when, when that fell apart, now we realize, well, who's going to get in charge of defining hate speech and obscene speech? And, and, and this, is, this is pretty much where... You know what's what's Peterson interested in? Is is Peterson really interested in in people going to church because churches need people, or is he interested in the culture once again regaining sort of the Christian herd immunity to um, have the culture work as it once did? Not that one, this one. Hey, it's, it's not an easy thing to, to like spontaneously generate up an answer for. But I, I would also say, you know, you said you're not sure your principles are coherent. And I would say, well, of course they're not to some degree, right? Because no one is well, characterized human. by a state of perfect coherence. Right. I think that would be paradisal in, in the most literal sense right. to have that. And I think now and then we snap into a coherence and when that happens, well, you have kids now, don't you? I've got one so far. We've got one. Okay, so so you you made an allusion to that. Ah, now he's got skin in the game. Before, and so I think that one of the things that having children... Skin in the game of the future. ...does is it opens you up to a kind of paradisal coherence 
upon occasion, because you now love someone, certainly, I would say, if you have any sense, more than you love yourself. You value that person more, you, right. in, in that you'd sacrifice yourself for them. Yes. Um, and I would say that in that depth of love, you get a glimpse of what that coherence could be. You know, because and you know that because you also alluded to the fact that when you had a child, that also compelled you to take another step forward on the maturation front. Yes. Right. Which 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 is exactly, of course, what happens to you if you have a child. If you aren't a narcissist right to the damn core, is that you do, you shed a lot of immaturity and you become a lot more coherent. And I think that does reveal itself in love. I really believe that. Very interesting. Today, we went pretty damn deep down the route. All right, so that's kind of the end of it. And the, um, yeah, the, this, this end of it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't as good as some of the more recent ones when I go through and it's like, oh, all the good stuff is in the Daily Wire part. Ooh, can't really do a lot of commenting on it. Don't want to get any more of them copyright strikes from Daily Wire. They took the one back, by the way, so I was really grateful. But I'm, I'm, I'm still not. I might wait until the, um, in April, the Exodus series is out on YouTube, and then I'll write the Daily Wire again and say, now can I comment on them? Now can I kind of dig, dig into them? You know, now will you strike me? <laughs> no, don't strike me. <laughs> so yeah, so. I wanted to finish this up and um, probably won't be real active in the comment section next week, but um, yeah, leave a comment. Let me know.